Good morning, Aletheia. I am speaking to you from a secure, deep underground bunker, and you may be wondering why. <laughs> and rest assured, this is not the new norm. This was not really even the plan for this Sunday. Uh, I am quite under the weather as of just the last couple of days. So we had to make the decision that rather than me exposing anybody to anything or rather than us having to reshuffle the preaching schedule at the very last minute, which would have been unfair to the next teacher, um, then I will teach from here. And you will see this in the future. I'm recording this on Friday, and God willing, you will be watching this Sunday morning. So uh, I, it, it's a strange setup for me. Um, some of you may recognize this room who've been over to my house. Uh, I, I don't know how to set up light and sound and all that. I just do the best I can and, you know, we have good technology and with the, the, uh, the AV team and Preston and Brian and the others who work on that team, then uh, you should be seeing this and hopefully also hearing this on Sunday morning. And those of you who are joining us online, I hope you're getting a good experience as well. So, um, I don't feel good. But I am very happy to be bringing the word, and I'm glad that I haven't been completely compromised in bringing the word to you this morning. As they say, the show must go on, and I say, Genesis must go on. So, we are in Genesis chapter 26, and this is uh, a good chapter to study this morning, and um, I'm going to open in prayer, and then we will go through the chapter. And then I'm sure the worship team will do a good job. I've already spoken with them about the, the, the plan and the song choices. And I'm, I wish I could be there to experience it with you. So let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for this church body. Thank you for each and every person who is hearing and watching these words at some point. Thank you for those who can gather together and watch something that you've brought to the church from the recent past. Lord, it's amazing. And it's amazing what you do in the body. It's amazing how you've brought your word from thousands of years ago so that we can study it together today. Lord, we invite you into the conversation, into our hearts, into the words. Lord, use me and use these, uh, you know, the, these technological means to, to speak to the body. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so um, the CDC says that you can't catch anything through uh, video. And unless they change their opinion on that, then you can all rest assured that this was the best choice we could make for today. So bear with me. We'll do the best we can. Genesis 26. By the way, you can probably hear it in my voice and everything. I just, I'll, I'll, If my voice gives out... I can I can hit pause and clear my throat and come back, so uh, bear with me. Okay, Genesis 26. I'm going to read it. I'm going to read it, and it's, it's, a, it's an interesting chapter, and for those of you who have been attending regularly, you'll see what I'm talking about. Now there was a famine in the land, besides the former famine that was in the days of Abraham. And Isaac went to Gerar, to Abimelech, king of the Philistines. And the Lord appeared to him and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Dwell in the land of which I shall tell you. Sojourn in this land, and I will be with you and will bless you.
For to you and to your offspring I will give all these lands, and I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham your father. I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, and will give to your offspring all these lands. And in your offspring all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. So Isaac settled in Gerar. When the men of the place asked him about his wife, he said, She is my sister. For he feared to say, My wife, thinking, Lest the men of the place should kill me because of Rebekah, because she was attractive in appearance. When he had been there a long time, Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked out of a window and saw Isaac laughing with Rebekah, his wife. So Abimelech called Isaac and said, Behold, she is your wife. How then could you say she is my sister? Isaac said to him, Because I thought, lest I die because of her. Abimelech said, What is this you have done to us? One of the people <coughs> might easily have lain with your wife, and you would have brought guilt upon us. So Abimelech warned all the people, saying, Whoever touches this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. <coughs> and Isaac sowed in that land and reaped in the same year a hundredfold. The Lord blessed him. And the man became rich and gained more and more until he became very wealthy. He had possessions of flocks and herds and many servants so that the Philistines envied him. Now the Philistines had stopped and filled with earth all the wells that his father's servants had dug in the days of Abraham, his father. And Abimelech said to Isaac, Go away from us, for you are much mightier than we. So Isaac departed from there and encamped in the valley of Gerar and settled there. And Isaac dug again the wells of water that had been dug in the days of Abraham his father, which the Philistines had stopped after the death of Abraham. And he gave them the names that his father had given them. But when Isaac's servants dug in the valley and found there a well of spring water, the herdsmen of Gerar quarreled with Isaac's herdsmen, saying, The water is ours. So he called the name of the well Esek, because they contended with him. Then they dug another well, and they quarreled over that also, so he called it Sitna. And he moved from there and dug another well, and they did not quarrel over it, so he called its name Rehoboth, saying, For now the Lord has made room for us, and we shall be fruitful in the land. From there he went up to Beersheba, and the Lord appeared to him the same night and said, I am the God of Abraham, your father. Fear not, for I am with you and will bless you and multiply your offspring for my servant Abraham's sake. So he built an altar there and called upon the name of the Lord and pitched his tent there. And there Isaac's servants dug a well. When Abimelech went to him from Gerar with Ahuzath, his advisor, and Phicol, the commander of his army, Isaac said to them, why have you come to me, seeing that you hate me and have sent me away from you? And they said, We see plainly that the Lord has been with you. So we said, Let there be a sworn pact between us, between you and us, 
and let us make a covenant with you, that you will do us no harm, just as we have not touched you, and have done to you nothing but good, and have sent you away in peace. You are now the blessed of the Lord. So he made them a feast, and they ate and drank. In the morning they rose early and exchanged oaths, and Isaac sent them on their way, and they departed from him in peace. The same day Isaac's servants came to him and told him about the well they had dug, and said to him, We have found water. He called it Sheba. Therefore the name of the city is Beersheba to this day. When Esau was forty years old, he took Judith, the daughter of Beeri the Hittite, to be his wife, and Basimuth, the daughter of Elan, the Hittite, and they made life bitter for Isaac and Rebekah. I read from the uh, ESV, for those of you that wonder, and I, I do change it up sometimes. So here's what we are, here's what we have, here's what's going on. We had 14 or so chapters of Abraham. We have, give or take, one chapter of Isaac, and then 11 or so chapters of Jacob following this chapter. This chapter, 26, is most of what we have of Isaac. And the question is, is Isaac a righteous man? Is he an unrighteous man? How should we consider Isaac? And why, for those of you who have been watching for a while, why are there so many wells and wives and wells and waters in this chapter? I'm going to resist the temptation of going too deep on that, but I don't think you should forget it in the back of your mind. So let's just give an outline of what happened in this chapter. First, there's a famine in the land of Israel. Or this is not the land of Israel yet. This is a land that will someday become the land of Israel. This is the land of Canaan. In the Beersheba, Judea, uh, area. Now, I think it's worth no noticing that the Bible explains the difference between this land and other lands. So let's go to uh, Deuteronomy chapter 11. If you just if you're in Genesis 26, it's just a couple books to the right: Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Go to chapter 11. And if you go to right around verse 10, then you're going to see God describing to the Israelites the difference between this land and other lands, specifically Egypt. And specifically Egypt, because if you notice, Isaac is trying to leave the land to go to Egypt. And going to Egypt is a, a theme in the Bible. There's a theme where you leave the promised land, you go to Egypt, you leave the promised land, you go to Egypt. Even Jesus was born in the promised land, went to Egypt, and it says, out of Egypt I've called my son. So going to Egypt is, is a big deal, 
it's not usually a good thing. It's usually because of a, being forced or, or because of a famine, which is a lack of water, that we go to Egypt. So let's just look at Deuteronomy chapter 11, starting in verse 10. For the land that you are entering to take possession of is not like the land of Egypt, from which you have come, where you sowed your seed and irrigated it, like a garden of vegetables. But the land that you are going over to possess <coughs> is a land of hills and valleys, which drinks water by the rain from heaven, a land that the Lord your God cares for. The eyes of the Lord your God are always upon it, from the beginning of the year to the end of the year. So what are we learning there? Egypt was in the Nile Valley. That means there's this, this massive river that is always running through it, and it would overflow its banks and then recede, and then overflow and then recede. And so the, the people who lived in Egypt were able to plant along the Nile and have pretty consistent water because they weren't dependent on rainfall. Well, the land of Canaan, from which, or into which God called his people and called Abram, and this is the modern land of Israel, doesn't have that same sort of irrigation system. There's a river there's a, that starts up in Galilee, which is in the north, and runs down the River Jordan into the Dead Sea, which is in the south. So, but all of that is dependent on rainfall. And if you spend any time in the land of Egypt, or in, sorry, in the land of Israel, you know that rain is where the water comes from, unless you dig wells or find springs. It's just rain. Rain is where it comes from. So they had, so if you go back to this Genesis 26 passage, then there's a famine in this Canaanite land, meaning it's some kind of drought, a lack of water. And as there's a famine in the land, then the thing that Isaac immediately decides is, all right, well, let's go to Egypt. If we go to Egypt, then, um, then there should be water there because they've got that river, and so I'm just going to go there. On the way, he's intercepted in the land of Gerar. So this is partway to Egypt, and God says to him, don't go to Egypt. That's an interesting phrase we can unpack for a while. Because if you look, look at the whole book of Exodus, then there's a lot in the book of Exodus about coming out of Egypt and don't go back to Egypt and stop longing to go back to Egypt. Egypt is very, very symbolic of slavery and, and um, opposition to Yahweh. So God says, don't go to Egypt. Dwell in the land which I shall tell you. So, we, so Isaac winds up dwelling in this land called Gerar, which is between... It's to, to the south, south western portion of, um, of uh, it, what, what is modern-day Israel. It's where the Philistines were at the time. And he runs into this guy named Abimelech. Before he runs into Abimelech, then God gives him a, a repetition of the covenant that he had given with Abraham. And he basically says, so, so here's what we're going to see in this chapter. As Isaac leaves the land, he gets a repetition of the covenant and a reassurance from God. And as he re-enters the land later, he gets a repetition of the covenant and an assurance from God. So he leaves the land from lack of water. God promises something to him. And there's a wife issue. And then he re-enters the land 
after water conflict and wife conflict, and God promises something to him, and there's a, a rediscovery of water, and then there's another wife issue. So take that for what it may be. So as he's entering into this Philistine land, then God tells him in verse 3, Sojourn in this land, and I will be with you, and I'll bless you and your offspring, and I'll give you these lands. So he's saying these lands that you're in now will actually be part of what you're going to inhabit in the long run. And I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham your father, your offspring as the stars of heaven, and I will give to your offspring all these lands, and in your offspring all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. And that should sound very familiar. We've preached on the covenant before. But he doesn't say they'll be blessed because you, Isaac, are so amazing or because you're so brilliant. He says in verse 5, you'll be blessed because Abraham, this is Isaac's father, obeyed my voice, kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. Now, was Abraham a perfect man? He was not a perfect man. But God, and I, th I think this is an important part of this passage, God is willing to overlook Abraham's, and, and when I say overlook, I, I don't mean ignore. It doesn't mean ignore. It means look past, look beyond Abraham's shortcomings for the sake of God's covenant with Abraham. So let's turn, as, as a good reference for it, let's go ahead and go to Psalm 103. Psalms, if you are uh, trying to find it, it's pretty darn close to the middle of your Bible. Let's go to Psalm 103. This is just an example. And I've, I found this to be an extremely comforting passage as I was reading or, and, try, and studying this passage. Because the, the question we're trying to answer is, we're going to see that Abraham was messed up and Isaac was messed up. And yet God says to Isaac, I'm going to bless you and care for you for the sake of Abraham who walked so well before me. Even though we know that Abraham had issues, he had problems. And he didn't do a good job walking well before God in a lot of cases. But God credits him with his righteousness. So... Biblically, how do we deal with a situation of, like, I have no business being up here in front of you teaching the Bible. Like, I, I, I don't. I'm, I'm a guy. I'm a flawed man. I have sin in my life. and I, I'm just trying to do better. But God treats me as though, as though I had never sinned. And we get these promises from the Lord that are above and beyond our, our sinful state. And, and, and as I speak about myself, I, I can include, and I know that the whole rest of the teaching team and the elder team and the volunteer team, they would include themselves in that category. Like, I'm, I'm, just, I'm just trying to do something here, but I'm not really qualified for this because it's, I'm being called to something bigger and better and beyond what I am. I mean, can I really exposit these you know, 4,000-year-old stories that were true and that happened, and can I really tell you about them? And Only by the grace of God is the answer. Only by the grace of God. And so you, you can take that into your own life and say, you know, the Lord, Lord God gives you this, this land, this territory, this requirement, these things that you're supposed to do, you know, these children you're supposed to raise, this wife or husband you're supposed to love, or these 
employees to whom you're responsible and and can you really do that well only by the grace of god and the grace means for him to extend to us so much more than we could possibly require in and of ourselves so much more than we could possibly reasonably say should be ours and he does that for us and i think psalm 103 and i'm going to read uh, verses uh, 10 through 14 uh, the, the whole psalm i mean it's good read it especially the last couple of verse, last few verses you'll find that very interesting but that's a separate conversation so ten, but 10 through 14 it says he does not deal with us according to our sins nor repay us according to our iniquities for as high as the heavens are above the earth so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him as far as the east is from the west so far does he remove our transgressions from us wouldn't you love and i'm, I'm not even through the, this section yet but wouldn't you love to have this proof, this physical removal of your transgression from you and, and have God say, I'm putting this so far away that it's not even the same category as you are anymore? What, I mean, can, if that doesn't speak to your heart, if you don't see yourselves as a transgressor, if that doesn't speak to you that where you get this picture of God saying, it's okay. It's okay, I know you've sinned. I know you've messed up. I know you have problems. I know you don't meet the standard. But you fear me. And so I'm going to take all that from you and I'm going to put it so far away that it's like the opposite end of the definition of what you're facing. That's comfort, my brothers and sisters. That is comfort. I'm still in Psalm 103. Verse 12, as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. Remember all the way back in Genesis, all the way back in the early chapters of Genesis, how we studied um, dust and, our, and what we are and what we're made of and that it's death. But we have this image of God imprinted in this like mud man death being. And, and what we're told in that Psalm 103 passage is, he knows that. He knows he knows our weakness. He knows that we are dead without him. But it also tells us that he loves us. He removes our sin from us. He, he doesn't look at us that way. He, he understands who we are and how broken we are. And he wants to separate us from our transgression 
and give us tremendous grace. And that's hope, brothers and sisters. That's hope, because I need that. I need that. And I know not all of you, but most of you sitting here watching this right now, and I know that you need it too. And you know, when we extend that grace to each other and we receive that grace from one another, we feel very alive. Like We feel like it speaks to our spirits because maybe that's what our spirits have needed all along. Maybe our spirits all along have needed grace. Maybe our spirits all along have been trapped in this dust body, struggling to be something more than we are, something to, to achieve a bar that we can't. And the message we have from Scripture is God doesn't look at you the same way you look at yourself. He doesn't require you to hit a bar that your dust body, dust mind, dust soul can't hit. He looks at you as though you had never sinned and he treats you accordingly. And so see that in this promise to Isaac, you know, this little passage about Isaac, who's one of the great patri patriarchs, one of, the, one of the, one, you know, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, which you hear so much so later in Scripture, and this is all we get of Isaac, and mostly we get Isaac screwing up. And yet, at the beginning and ending of Isaac screwing up, which he does, sincerely, then you have God repeating a promise of covenant and blessing before and after. So, I think we left off right around verse 4. God promised him, as, as Isaac left the promised land and entered into a southern, southwestern portion of the promised land, on his way to Egypt, God stopped him and said, No, stay here. I'm going to bless you for the sake of your father, Abraham. That was where we were in around verse 4 and 5. So Isaac settled in Gerar. Now here's the strange thing. And when the men of the palace asked him about his wife, he said, she is my sister. For he feared saying, my wife, thinking lest the men of the palace should kill me because of Rebekah. All right. If this is your first time really hearing anything from Genesis, this is just going to sound weird. But if you've been working with us for this entire series, this is going to sound extremely repetitive. Because Isaac's father, Abraham, did this twice, including with Abimelech. Now, Abimelech, by the, word, by the way, the name Abimelech means my father is king. The Abimelech that Isaac is dealing with is probably the son of the Abimelech that Abraham dealed with. And if you want to go to extra-biblical texts like the book of Jasher, then they are going to specifically say that the Abimelech Isaac is dealing with is the son of the Abimelech that Abraham dealt with. So Abraham, for just for a very quick reminder, went to Egypt, said his wife was his sister, caused all kinds of havoc, came back, and then went to this same area of Gerar, and the father of this Abimelech, who was also called Abimelech, uh, had the same issue with Abraham, when Abraham said that Sarah was his sister, not his wife. And then we go to the son, and the son is going into the same land, and he makes the same mistake. Now, the, the details are slightly different, and we could read into them tremendously. I could, We could go into, like, uh, you know, the plagues that happened before versus 
this situation, which is actually much cleaner compared to the previous. But basically, you get Isaac showing up into the same land his father showed up and making the same lie that his father made, which is, this isn't really my wife, this is my sister. And why is he making it? He's making that lie because he's afraid to die for his bride. He's afraid that somebody else is going to want his bride. One man in the Bible died for his bride. Jesus Christ was not afraid to die for his bride. And I hope, I hope that hits you as hard as it hit me when I was studying this, of like, you get these patriarchs, these people who are called friends of God, this line from which Jesus ultimately is born. And they're all afraid to die for their brides, that their bride might be so attractive that they can't live up to it, that that somebody would take their bride. And think about being the bride in that case, being basically forsaken by your husband, that that your husband would say, I, I value my life more than I value you, so I, I'm afraid of this, so we're going to tell this lie. And because of this lie, you may be taken by somebody else and carried off into a foreign land, but at least I'm alive. That's ultimately what Abraham is facing when he told these lies and what Isaac is facing when he told this lie. If, I mean, if you just game theory this out, and for those of you with an economics background like me, if you love game theory, like there's no real winning answer here. If the On the, the best case scenario, uh, uh, Isaac lives and his wife is taken by somebody else. That's not a good outcome. He's afraid to die for the sake of his bride. Can you imagine how that felt for Rebecca? Say, you know, I'm, I'm your husband, and I find you so valuable that I can't possibly live up to that, and so somebody else will take you, and so the best thing we can do is just not cause too much conflict over that and, you know, go ahead and be taken by somebody else, and I, at least I'm alive. It's not a very, you know, there's a lot of problems with that move. It's, I mean, husbands, does your, does your, your, your husband, does your masculinity like, like bubble over a little bit at that? Like, it's my wife. Yes, she's beautiful. And I'm proud of that. And no, you can't have her. But there was something about this patriarchal line and the stakes were so high that these patriarchs were very, very concerned about losing their wives into these sinful lands. And I, you know, last yesterday, because I was sick, I had Thanksgiving all by myself at home. And, um, you know, on one hand, that's terrible. On the other hand, I rarely ever get a day home by myself where I don't have to work. And, and I listened to almost the entire Gospel of John, at least the first, uh, I don't know, dozen chapters or so, and thought about it. And you can see Jesus really identifying himself over and over as the groom of the bride and, and going up against these 
these people who want to take his bride from him. And Jesus says, no. And he says, over and over in the first 12 odd chapters of John, he says, you're going to try to kill me for my bride. And he, he, he doesn't say bride so much. He says, you're going to try to kill me because of who I am. And he's very overt about that. But we know that who he is there for is he says, these are my people and they cannot be taken from me. And this, the, this group of people cannot be taken from me. And whoever the father gives me is mine and, and they will not be snatched out of my hand and I will die for it. And you're going to try to kill me for it. That was the bravery of Christ. And we know that it did ultimately cost him that much. Ultimately, it did cost him so much that he did die for his bride. And he was killed out of jealousy for his bride. Because somebody else wanted her. Now, it didn't work, praise God, because ultimately... We, the church, are his bride, and we are restored to him perfectly. And he was, you know, you, you read the Gospels, you see Jesus Christ uh, agonized over what he was going to go through and, that, and that, that what he was going to face, and, but he never failed to tell the truth, to say, I am the rightful husband of this people. I am the, the, the groom for this bride. And he actually uses some of that analogy in, in, his, um, in his parables. And he set this up so clearly. But he was in a wicked land. And there were other people who said, no, you can't have her. I'm going to have her instead, and we're going to kill you for it. That was the challenge that Jesus faced. And Abram couldn't stand up to that challenge proven multiple times, both in Egypt and in Gerar or Philistia. He couldn't do it. Isaac, the son of Abram, faced with the same challenge, couldn't stand up to it. He was afraid. Abram was afraid. Isaac was afraid. The bride was betrayed. That's what happened. That's what happened. But Jesus doesn't betray his bride. Jesus doesn't betray his bride. He'll die for his bride. He'll die for his bride because she's rightfully, legally, lawfully his. And that's the foreshadowing and the type that we get. So Isaac settles in this land of Philistia, and he tells this, this lie, and, he sa- and he's afraid, and he says, she's not really my bride, she's my sister. Like, we're, we're, we know each other, we're acquainted, but, you know, I'm, I'm not claiming real responsibility for her because she's very attractive and you want her. And she was very attractive. Well, he gets caught, you know, graciously by God, he gets caught. Abimelech, king of the Philistines, and I'm in verse 8. So this is when they had been there for some months, or it says a long time, but if you follow the calendar year and the harvest and all that that's going on, he's been there for probably a couple months. And Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looks out a window, and he saw Isaac laughing with Rebekah, his wife. Now, if you have a King James version, 
then it says sporting with Rebecca, his wife. Basically, we, we're not sure what laughing with means. Uh, what I have written in my margin, I don't know if you can see it, what I have written in my margin here is cavorting with Rebecca's wife. Abimelech sees something where he's like, yeah, that's not something you do with your sister. This is, this is your wife. And so he calls Isaac to account. And uh, in, in verse 9 of Genesis 26, Abimelech calls Isaac and says, she's your wife. How could you say she's your sister? And Isaac says, because I thought you would kill me for her. And he might have been right. Maybe, maybe not. I don't know what it is about Sarai and Rebecca that their husbands were afraid to be murdered. I mean, they, they, their husbands were powerful people. These, I mean, these were guys with households of hundreds and flocks and herds and servants and consorts and I mean they had they were some of the wealthiest people in the entire region they're so wealthy and so powerful of households that they're actually asked to leave the land because the land has trouble supporting them and yet he would still say well I thought you were going to kill me for my bride and Abraham his father said well I thought you were going to kill me for my bride in Egypt and in Philistia and then Isaac says in Philistia, I thought you were going to kill me for my bride. And it's almost a cookie cutter weird thing because I never thought like I would go somewhere and say, I'm, I'm going to, it's a true story. I wasn't planning to share this today, but um, some years ago, back when I was in grad school, I lived in downtown Baltimore, <laughs> you know, the oasis of downtown Baltimore. And, um, it's, you know, it's earned its reputation for better and for worse, and especially for worse. And there was a time where the casualty rate was higher than the rate in the uh, war in Afghanistan to the to date for that same year. And that was where we lived. And I had a, my same wife, Rachel, who you know, who's my lovely wife, of whom I'm very proud. And um, we had a young, uh, Jolene was just an infant, and for, and I'll cut to the chase, you know, I, I had to walk her across a park at night because of where she had to park because you're in a city and the parking's bad. And she called me and said, oh, I had to park way over here. And I said, don't walk across that park. Let me lock the door. Jolene's sleeping in her crib upstairs. I will run across to where you are and walk you back. And we're walking back. And I'm, she's, I don't think she was seeing it, but I was seeing it that I was watching the people in the park slowly kind of triangulating into the space. And these were not the people that you wanted to meet in a park in downtown Baltimore late at night. And so there was a moment where I said to Rachel, I said, run home as fast as you can. And she said, why? And I said, because, because these people are coming and I don't want you to be here when they get here. And she started running and to, to her credit, she listened and she ran. And I said, before she left, I said, and call the police when you get there. And she said, why? And I said, tell them to come to this park because I'm still going to be here and you need to run home. And she did. And I'm to this day ever so grateful that she did because she took off running and a whole bunch of uh, malcontents triangulated at that spot. And I was in the middle of it. And you know what? It, and it wasn't pretty. And some things happened. And um, and the one thing I was so grateful for was my bride wasn't there because I, 
I was afraid to have to die for my bride because it would have been so much worse if she had been there. But to, you know, by the grace of God, that wasn't a decision I had to make. I just had to figure out how to work my way out of a whole group of violent people in Baltimore. And it, and it didn't go well. And the police showed up, uh, you know, accordingly a dozen minutes later. And a lot can happen in a dozen minutes. But the point is, like, you, as, as a man who recognizes the value of your bride and the, um, the attraction of your bride, it's just, it's just not something you mess with. And so on one hand, I kind of get this. But on the other hand, I totally don't get it because I would never say, like, oh, she's my sister. You know, that's just, it, maybe I wouldn't, maybe I would. I don't know. Search your heart. It's a tough, it's a tough call. But what I do know is Jesus never denied his bride, even unto death. And we should love him for that. So what happened was Abimelech sees that Rebecca is actually the bride, not the sister of Isaac. And, um, and Abimelech calls Isaac to the carpet and says, why did you lie to us? That like you would have brought great sin on us. Any any of and if you go to the book of Jasher and some of these external books that any of the great men of the land could have taken your your wife as a wife and you would have brought sin on us. And he and so he's actually raises up a decree that says anybody who touches this man or his wife will be put to death. So he protects the uh, the 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 purity of that marriage. Then we go to verse 12, and it just transitions, and it says, Isaac sowed in that land and reaped in the same year a hundredfold. So the year that he left from famine, he showed up, maybe there was a year lost, but in this land, and there, there is a river there, it's not the same as the River Nile, but there's a river in the land of Gerar. He sows and he reaps a hundredfold, which is you know a very, very high yield from the harvest. And it goes on to say, and the man Isaac became rich and he gained more and more until he became very wealthy. He had possessions of flocks and herds and servants so that the Philistines envied him. We're going to see this repeated when, uh, and I'm not saying, I'm not saying where we're going next with preaching. I'm just saying if you continue on through Genesis and Exodus, this is what happens with the Israelite people in the land of Egypt. They become so prosperous that the Egyptians envy and fear them. And then it goes into this weird parenthetical statement in verse 15. It says, Now the Philistines had stopped and filled with earth all the wells that his father's servants had dug in the days of Abraham his father. So Abraham had been in the same area. He had dug wells. And the Philistines, for whatever reason, had stopped up those wells. Water, wells, wives. You're going to see waters, wells, wives again and again. I'm not going to go too far down that rabbit hole, but I'm just I'm just going to point it out to you so that you can see, you know, what's ringing in my head as I read this. And Abimelech said to Isaac in verse 16, Go away from us, for you are much mightier than we. So Isaac departed from there. He encamped, so he went out into the valley. He started following the river up. He encamped in the valley of Gerar, and he settled there. Now, the rest of this, I, the one joke I heard as I was researching some of this is you call the rest of this, oh, well, because it's all about wells after this until the end where it's about wives. Isaac dug again the wells of water that had been dug in the days of Abraham, his father, and the Philistines had stopped up after the death of Abraham. And he gave the wells the names that his father had given them. 
But when Isaac's servants dug in the valley and found a well of spring water, that means running water, they, they uncovered a spring, then the herdsmen at Gerar quarreled with Isaac's herdsmen, saying, the water's ours. Running, so remember, water is a, a kind of an eternal life symbol. If you, that doesn't make any sense, go back and look at the last message I preach. So he called the well Essek, that means contention. They dug another well. So he, he digs a well, they argue with him, he moves on. Now this is different from how his father Abraham would have done this. Abraham uh, actually called to carpet, uh, called onto the carpet some of these uh, arguments about wells and with the, Abimelech's father, Abimelech, and said, hey, we've got some conflict about wells, can we sort it out? And he did that effectively. So this is a little different. Isaac's a little more passive. And again, we only get one chapter about Isaac. And the, the hint is from Scripture that Abraham was very remarkable. Isaac was a man. And his son Jacob was very remarkable. So you get like a, the son of a remarkable man produced a remarkable man. And the man in between gets one chapter. Whereas, you know, his father gets 14 and his son gets 11 chapters. So just keep in mind that that's the kind of dynamic that we're dealing with. So they dig a well, it's called contention, Essek. They quarrel over that, so he moves on, and they dig another well, and they quarrel about that one, and that one's called opposition, and they dig a third well called Rehoboth, which means um, there's room for us, but he's still in this Philistine territory, Rehoboth. Uh, you ever been to Rehoboth Beach, Delaware? Dogfish had breweries there. It's a good place to visit. It's not close to anything, but worth worth visiting. But it's named after, you know, Rehoboth means there's room for us. From there, he goes back up to Beersheba. He's going back into his homeland. And that Beersheba, the name of Beersheba is the well of the oath. And this is back going all the way back to the Abrahamic time. And the Lord appeared to him. So, the Lord appears to Isaac in Scripture two times. He appeared to uh, Abraham, give or take, eight times, but appear versus spoke to. you got to split some hairs there. But, you know, he also had 11 chapters to work with. So two times in this chapter, Abraham has God appear to him. And God appears to him when he leaves the land and when he comes back to the land. And the Lord said to him, and kind of reemphasizes this covenant thing, I am the God of Abraham, your father, Fear not, for I am with you and will bless you and multiply your offspring and my servant for Abraham's sake. So Isaac built an altar there and called upon the name of the Lord and pitched his tent there. And Isaac's servants dug a well. So, if you see my <laughs> semi-frustration here, I'm dealing here with, like, the wells in this chapter are like the camels in a couple of chapters ago, where we were in chapter... 24 and there's camels everywhere and in this chapter there's wells everywhere those of you who know me know i'm extremely tempted to try and do something with that and i'm resisting it because i don't know exactly where to go besides what i've already said that the that the well and the land and the wife are very interconnected the wife is the the seed through which the heritage comes and the and the well is the the brings water and the water is eternal life and the land has the well and the wife has the offspring and you get land with no wells and you get wives with with no babies and like this is just these themes that repeat over and over and over in scripture 
especially in these sections of scripture. So just like we had camels, 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 camels last time I preached, it's wells, 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 wells this time I'm preaching. So they dug a well. Verse 26, you get Abimelech comes up from the land of Gerar to find Isaac. And I think, you know, Lot, if you read this from, you know, I back when I was in the military, I had a lot of military strategic studies courses. And I think that what's happening here is Abimelech recognized that there's been conflict, 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 conflict over these wells. And if there's been a lot of conflict, he's probably concerned because he's recognizing and he's saying, Isaac is blessed by God. We can't be arguing with him. And if that's true, then we should go find him and make a covenant. And you're going to find a very similar scene if you go back some chapters to find Abram. So Abimelech, in fear of this rising conflict, because the conflict's been repeating and it was handled differently under Abraham, Abimelech takes the initiative, finds Isaac and says, hey, we know that you're blessed by God. And I'm in verse 28. He says, we see plainly that the Lord has been with you. So we said, let us make a sworn pact, skipping to 29, that you'll do us no harm, just as we have done you no harm. You are the blessed of the Lord. So Isaac made a feast, and they ate and drank. This is peace restored. Peace restored. And in the morning, they rose early and exchanged oaths, and, he, and Isaac sent them on their way, just as he sent them on their way in peace, the way Abimelech had, you know, several verses back, sent him on his way in fear. Said, hey, you're too big, you're too powerful, get out of here. And now they've come to him and said, can we have, an, can we have a covenant? And they made a covenant, exchanged some oaths, and Isaac said, okay, you can go in peace. And then, on that same day, verse 32, Isaac's servants told him that they found water in the well. So Isaac didn't have water, leaves his land, God repeats the covenant to him. He goes to this foreign land, almost loses his wife. His wife is restored to him. He's extremely blessed in the land, but struggles to find, he has failed well after failed well until restored well, but then has to leave it and come back to the land where God re repeats the covenant again. And then Abimelech comes back, swears peace with him, and then there's a well that is found that is more permanent. And this is, you know, likely, uh, this is not the same well, but it's, it's in the same area, the same kind of well where Jesus meets the Samaritan woman in John chapter 5, I think is where that happens. So they called up uh, and said, we have found water. Then we get this weird parenthetical statement in verse 34. Esau was 40 years old and he took Judith the daughter of Beri the Hittite to be his wife, and Basimeth the daughter of Elon the Hittite, and they made life bitter for Isaac and Rebekah. I know we're about 50 minutes in, so I'll stop. All of a sudden, as a bookend at the end of this chapter, you say Esau, who is the twin brother of Jacob, so Isaac had two twin boys, Jacob and Esau. Esau takes two wives, foreign wells, foreign wives, make of that what you may, they make life bitter. For Isaac and Rebekah. Bitter. This, this word bitter is very rare in scripture and this particular formation of it is only here and the word bitter is morah ruha. Ruha is spirit. 
may their spirit bitter. The only two other times where you see bitter, so there's a, a two or three times where bitter comes up in the Old Testament. One is where Mara says, I've lost my husband, or Naomi says, I've lost my husband. Don't call me Naomi, call me Mara. That's in the book of Ruth. You also see bitter water in Exodus 15, where they find a well and the water is bitter. And then in Numbers 5, then the bitterness is the drinking of the bitter water, which is the curse of the adulterous wife. So there's something about water and wells and wives going on here. And we could make it super esoteric, but I think what it's saying is everything you see in Scripture is pointing to your Heavenly Father trying to, trying to show you who He is and what He's like. It's trying to show you that like water, essential to life, matters. Uh, fertility in women matters. Marriage matters. And he established the world that way because he's trying to show you what kind of God he is. To the extent that we get these, these stories and these repetitions. and I mean, we could go way down this rabbit hole, but we're out of time. We get these stories and these repetitions of waters and wells and wives and fertility and babies and even, you know, a couple chapters ago, camels and, and who, who carry water. And, and it's all pointing towards Christ who claims in John chapter 5 where he meets at a woman who is confused about her husband. So is there a bridal confusion? He meets her at a well and he says, I'm the living water. And Christ is willing to die for his bride, whereas Isaac wasn't, and Abraham wasn't, but he comes from that same line. Um, brothers and sisters, that's the best I can do. <laughs> I compromise, I don't feel well, but um, worship now together. And uh, I'm praying for you. I love you all. I hope that you understand this section of scripture a little bit more now. And I look forward to worshiping with you when I'm over this.